Today on Trauma for Breakfast, join Stacy as she has a conversation with former NFL player Galen Elmore. There are a lot of statistics that have impacted Galen, from the football field to the foster system. His life has been about beating statistics and not becoming one. Galen opens up about his childhood, living with parents who struggled with addiction and generational abuse, and his perspective in and out of the foster system. He shares his at times heartbreaking and unsettling interactions and relationships with foster parents, caseworkers, coaches, and teachers. You'll learn from those who helped him and those who failed him. His story of hope highlights the power of relationships and what they can do. Prepare to be inspired. Welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. Welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. I am your host, Stacey Gagnon, and I have with me Galen Elmore today. I heard about Galen through the grapevine of foster care and adoption as this phenomenal speaker who spoke at this conference, who basically went from foster care and homelessness to NFL football player to motivational speaker for, for youth and foster and adopt families. And I thought, what a perfect, perfect person to bring on to Trauma for Breakfast and just share with us. Cause I, I always love to get the experience from those who have walked um, hard things and, and really have come out the other side. And so welcome Galen. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am gonna let you really expand on the introduction and just tell me who is Galen? Yeah, so Galen is a husband and dad from uh, the Midwest. I'm born and raised Midwest through and through. Uh, we have a two-year-old daughter. She is just running our life in every direction you can imagine. Yeah, I always said that that wouldn't happen. And then I, like, God bless me with one of the most stubborn two-year-olds you can meet. So so we're just navigating that. We're expecting our second child, uh, another girl in August. So helping my wife through another pregnancy and that's what I, uh, I do full time. And then when I get the free time elsewhere, I get a chance to speak and, and have an impact in, in the space that I used to frequent and be in. And it's really an honor because, like you said, being someone who, who has gone through it, there's value that you can add to the people that are currently in it, being the, the kids. But there's also value you can add to the people that are trying to help them get through it. And that's that's really what my aim and goal is and what I want to do through sharing my experience and sharing little nuggets of wisdom or inspiring different people to continue to make that difference, to continue to show up in what is an extremely hard place to be in, whether you're an adult in the professional sense or you're a caregiver, or if you're a child, especially if you're a child. So that's what I do. And uh, my heart is really centered in, in my heart is really after this idea of belonging. Um, belonging is something that I think we all can resonate with, although we may not use that exact word. It's this desire to feel connection to other people, to feel uh, like you have importance, that you matter, and that you have value. And through different work that I've been able to do, different research and things like that, I've just come to understand like there's this deficit, there's this belonging gap that children and youth and child welfare face. And so how can we as adults with our knowledge, with the resources and things that we have at our disposal, how can we erase that gap for the, the youth that we interact with, that we come in contact with. So yeah, that's really what my, my heart mission message is all centered around. How can we best do that and erase that gap? So now when they are through it or they are on the other side of 
the hard things that come with foster, uh, foster care and adoption, now they are equipped and ready to reach their full potential and, and be who they were destined to be in this world that they now have to navigate. You know, that that lack of belonging, or we even call it like relational poverty that we see in children that come into the system can really be defined well by thinking about a child being moved out of their home and a lot of times out of their community. And so they lose all of the relationships that they once knew. Yep. And so tell me if you're willing, Galen, what were your experiences with that lack of belonging or that relational poverty? What was your what was your foster care journey through childhood? Yeah, my uh, my experience was constant upheaval, constant movement, constant separation, uh, just struggling to get close to people or feel like feeling like people don't want to get close to me. I entered the foster care system at five months old. And I know now the biological and physiological impact and psychological impact on a young child in the first couple years of their life and what it means to be taken away from your family, be taken away from that place that is the number one point of belonging in, in every person's life. To be separated from that at five months, uh, the first couple of years I just spent going into care, going back home, going into care, going back home and just kind of did this back and forth or boomerang, ping pong, whatever you want to call it. I did that for the first couple of years of my life. And then I was placed into foster care. I was taken from my parents again when I was just about turning five. And then I was not with them until I was almost 13 was when I got back with my dad. And then through that time, went through a lot of different things, stayed in a ton of different homes. Um, I actually don't even know the the exact number of homes I've stayed in, even looking through all my case files, my, my case file is actually incomplete. I just know it's more than 15. And, and so I don't know how many homes I stayed in technically. Got back from my dad when I was just turning or before I turned 13 start, and I was starting seventh grade year. And then uh, my dad ended up getting in trouble again. At 16, I was, face, I was going to have to go back into foster care. Uh, and instead of doing that, my teacher and high school co- football coach ended up becoming my temporary guardian. And I lived with him until I quote unquote aged out of being just in the guardian. Like it was kind of a kinship care situation. My dad signed over temporary guardianship to him uh, to avoid me going into foster care. Then I was 18 and adult and with no answers, no healing that really had taken place. I was forced to navigate the world as, as an adult. Fortunately, I had support through athletics. I was able to play college football uh, and be on scholarship. And then, so I had some, some support there, but now I just think about that. I'm like, what about other foster youth that age out and don't have an athletic scholarship to fall back on? The reality is when I became a college athlete, I was my stipend that I got every month was I was making more than my parents, my biological parents. I had more money. I was able to give them money to support them. And so I was just, I had, I was privileged in that way. Reality is I was still navigating life, uh, being still this emotionally like malnourished adult. I, I didn't know how to form relationships. I didn't know how to let people get close to me. No one really knew me. And it led to kind of this a uh, rude awakening a couple of years into my college career. So that's kind of really brief overview of all the different things that I experienced. And there we can definitely um, park on one of those points or seasons of my life and talk more about it. But we could fill up two hour podcasts just telling you all the different checkpoints of my story. Just hearing the the being bounced around and all the different foster homes that you were went through. One of the things that really stands out to me I don't understand how you made it academically. 
That just blows my mind because I did read a little bit about how, you know, you didn't have a 4.0, but school always came very easy to you. And mm-hmm. so you always maintained a decent grade point average and obviously finished college. Was there something within you that was driving you to academically succeed? Or was there someone that was a teacher or someone that was helping you? What, what was that? How did you succeed in that? That's a great question. I, I think there's three main crossroads that I think went in my favor that led me to be able to be successful academically. One, my parents, neither of them graduated high school. Um, They both ended up getting their GED. My dad ended up enlisting into the army and he got education that way, but my parents weren't educated. But my dad, who, when I was with him, I had two older sisters that were three and that are three and six years older than I am. And when they were in school, I was at home and or at daycare. And when I was like two, three, uh, my dad, when my sisters would get home, my dad worked third shift. So he'd be up when they get home before he'd go to work. They'd get home, he'd do their homework with them, but he'd make me sit there and be with them while they were doing their homework. So very early, my dad was engaging me uh, mentally and stimulating my mind and and forcing me to think strategically and and problem solve and things like that. Another aspect of kind of how he did that and, and facilitated that is he started to teach me how to play chess. He saw that I was a competitive kid and he started to teach me how to play chess at like two years old. He modified some of the rules. So I wasn't playing it perfectly, but by times, by the time I was three, I did know how to play and we would play. And I, it took me seven. I didn't beat him until I was 10 years old, but that's just kind of the the relationship that my dad built with me. He was a very militaristic man, um, was very stern, appreciated uh, structure and discipline. So our, our connection was through the, the mental side of things. And it was, my mom was the very affectionate one. She was the one that babied me. She was, I was a mama's boy, uh, but that was, that was how my dad engaged me. Second, when I was going into first grade, so that kind of gave me the foundation. When I was going into first grade, because I was in foster care, I was able to go to a Montessori uh, elementary school. And being in a Montessori elementary school, for those that don't know, it's a unique learning environment where each student gets to move at their own pace. That you kind of, wherever you are developmentally, they will allow you to choose at, at what speed you're going to go. And it allows an inclusive, interactive environment where there might be one-on-one lessons, there might be a one-on-five lesson. Everything doesn't have to be one to 28, one teacher up front to all the uh, students. And a lot of times there's multiple like teacher's aides in there. So it's a very free-flowing environment. And when I got there, because of the trauma and things that I had experienced, I was always labeled the talkative, hyperactive, ADHD, bipolar kid. With my kindergarten and preschool teachers, I never got the time of day. I would always be in trouble I'd always get sent out of class. And the reality was like, I just needed to be stimulated. I needed to be engaged. And if I wasn't going to be engaged, I was going to find a way to do that. And that often led to problems. Well, when I got to the, the Montessori school and the Mont- how the Montessori classroom is set up, you're with multiple grades as well. So I was with, when I got there in first grade, I was with second and third graders along with first graders. And it just created, it created this environment where I could always be learning something new and doing something different. Not only that, with my issues with attachment and things like that, I had the same teacher for three years. And so I got really, really close with her. We developed a really cool bond and I felt very safe in her classroom. And so I feel like the Montessori classroom, the freedom to move at my own pace, which I was always very quick. I was fast. I would catch one of the things and then just try to move through them. Then you add that competitive side in me. You hand me a list of things that you want me to do. 
I'm going to see how fast I can do them. That just allowed me to learn and, and grow and develop. By So by the time I was, I stayed in that school first through sixth grade, by the time I was in third grade, I was going up and doing lessons with fifth graders on the other side of the school. And by the time I was in fourth grade, we were doing pre-algebra and things with middle schoolers in the school. So I landed in a really cool spot. And then the third piece I would say is when I moved to that school, actually, is when I moved into a foster home that ended up being physically and emotionally abusive. And for the first time, not only did I not feel safe in relationships, but for the first time in my life, I didn't feel safe at home. And that had never really been the case. Like I didn't feel safe with like getting close to people or letting people get close to me because I feel like they would hurt me and let me down, disappoint me. But to not feel physically safe at home, um, to want to do everything in my power to avoid being there was enough motivation for me to be totally locked in at school. And then you add in just the environment that they created, the connections that I made. I immediately, first, second, third grade, started to see school as this is a place that's a privilege and I need to treat it that way. And I need to commit everything I have when I'm here so that I don't get in trouble and get sent home and have to be at home for three days because I got suspended. I don't want to, I want to be in every extracurricular if I can. And so I just started to, to dive in. When I wasn't home, I, I was at school and that eight hours, nine hours, and if you had to bust the additional time on the front and back end, it was a safe haven. And so I feel like there was this perfect storm in the early formative years in my relationship with education that's really solidified the, the value of that for me. And then I started to build the confidence that I was intelligent, that I was capable, that I was gifted. And I had people pour into me instead of just telling me, oh, Galen talks too much. He's always in trouble. He, we have to send him out of the class. It was just a different approach where I don't feel like all foster youth or all youth with hard or adverse backgrounds get the opportunity or privilege to experience that. And so I, later in life, I definitely had other teachers that stepped in and, and were meaningful, but that kind of early introduction to it with my dad and then going to the Montessori school and then adding on top of it, the, the threat of the abusive home all of that really made school a no-brainer for me. It's really interesting to hear you talk about your relationship with your parents and, and feeling incredibly loved and safe in your home, and then going into foster care and then landing in a foster home that you felt incredibly unsafe and, and saying, for the first time in my life, I experienced abuse. Would you unpack that a little bit, Galen? Because you know, for us, the whole idea, like I, I do think we villainize biological parents a lot of mm -hmm. time. Yep. When a lot of times it's someone who's struggling in life, but I would love if you would unpack that. Yeah. My, my parents, I often refer to them as high functioning addicts. They were drug addicts and they struggled with alcohol abuse. The drug um, addiction was way more severe, but that, that was my parents. That was their thorn in their side. That was their Achilles heel. And, and at the end of the day, they were addicts. So if it came down to me and my siblings versus their addiction, more often than not, more likely than not, they were going to choose their addiction. And that's what ended up getting us taken out of the home. But as far as my relationship with them, they were, they were awesome parents. Like I, I remember them being awesome parents. My family, when I got taken away around the age of four or five, that was the last time my family was ever whole again. Meaning the kids got removed about a year and a half later, my parents divorced. My dad wasn't my his biological dad. So like we kind of got just discombobulated within the system. So now my parents are doing individual meetings. My mom, my mom ended up giving up her parental rights. And so it just created this segmented 
fraction of our family. But early on, they, they were awesome parents. They struggled with addiction and they always kept a job. We always had money. If anything, that was uh, one of the problems that my parents had is they always wanted to keep up the appearance that things were working and things were going well. So because my both my parents came from trauma backgrounds and struggle themselves, they wanted to keep up the appearance that everything was good. So we always had a nice car. When it was a birthday, we always had tons of gifts. We had a relatively normal life, except when they put us to bed, they would lock us in our in our bedroom so they could do drugs and, and have people over or go party and they would leave. And and I really did it. Like I had a lot of anger and hate toward them when I got older. But when I started to really understand ACEs and look at their stories, like their ACEs score is just as high as mine is. Like my mom was on her own at 14. Her mom died from liver disease, from alcoholism when she was 40. She never knew her dad. My dad grew up in Southern Mississippi, like uh, never knew his dad, his mom, like he was abused as a kid. So like, I can't look at their stuff and like blame them for doing better because they were just a product of their own situation. So there's empathy for that. Um, but there's also still accountability because at the end of the end of the day, we're not, and I love this quote, we're not responsible for what happens to us, but we are responsible for what we do after. Yeah. And so how we respond to it. And so, yeah, they, our parents are relatively normal. We would have that engagement with them and they would be active. They would ask about school, but then at night, they would lock us into our room and they would go do what they would have to do or what they felt like they had to do. And so then we would eventually we started to be able to get out and we would go do what we wanted to do. And that just became normal life. Yes, there was justification in my parents, like us being taken from my parents, because they were in so many ways, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. But I also feel like and this is in the 90s. I also feel like if they had some some different community support, that they would have been able to work through that. Not my, my family would have been able to be kept together. So yeah, my relationship with them were great. We never, we never feared for not having a meal on the table. We never feared for um, if we were going to have a, a roof over our heads, that wasn't the problem in my childhood. But then when I got to foster care, that's when I started to experience food scarcity for the first time. That's when I started to go to sleep with hunger pains. That's when I started to steal food because I was hungry. That's when I started to be physically abused and talked down to and emotionally abused and made fun of by the people that are taking care of me. That's, and that was something I didn't understand. And so for me as a kid, I very quickly, I made the decision that I was going to like do everything in my power to show the system that it wasn't good for me. And so by the only way I, I did that and the only way I knew how which was not talking or not letting anyone get close to me. I literally remember sitting in one of my caseworkers car and making the decision to shut everybody out. And in my, that's reflected in my case file that they would say, I, I didn't talk to people that I was almost like designated mute because I shut down and didn't let anyone in. And like, it's because I wanted to go back home because I really felt like that was the best place for me. Yeah. So, so my, that relationship in the early end on the early end was, was awesome. And I loved it. And I wish I had more memories of it. I was so young. My sisters have different memories, but it was, it was beautiful. And like being able to look back at my case file and see visit summaries about how my family interacted. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but at the same time, when I read it, I, I have to mourn that idea because 
the later years was not not pretty my like the system really in the process and maybe the process more than the system the process really did a number on my parents uh on our my me and my siblings and then our relationships with each and every one of us so um yeah let me ask you think about that galen sitting in a caseworker's car and determining in your mind to shut down is there anything an adult whether it be a teacher or foster parent or case manager could have said or done for you in that moment or prior to that moment. So you didn't get to that headspace. Um, yeah, I remember before. So making, and again, as a kid, I was an extremely cognitive child. Like I thought things through uh, all the time and I was always trying to like my dad introduced me to chess. So I literally thought life was a game of chess, like it's strategy. Uh, if I make this move, what are they going to do? Um, if they do that, what am I going to do? And so it's always this cause and effect. And that's really how I lived my, lived my life. And so as I was sitting in his car, I was doing that same process. I was thinking, okay, how can I make this situation better? And my dad, again, a military man would always use this phrase when we would make decisions that put us in peculiar situations. He would just, he would say, you're in a compromising position right now. And he would basically say like, you really don't have power to decide what happens. And it's probably because of decisions you've made or what you weren't paying attention to. And so that's what he would tell me in chess all the time. If I moved a piece and it got me in trouble, he'd be like, you're in a compromising position. If I did something wrong, like if I was messing with my sisters and they hit me back, he was like, you put yourself in a compromising position. And so that was the language he used. And I sat in the car and I remember thinking, like, I'm in a compromising position. Like, this is unfortunate I don't know if it's my fault that this is happening, but what can I do to try to get out of it? In my head, I was like, okay, if I shut everybody out, don't let them get close to me, show them that I hate being in foster care, then the only logical explanation can be that they bring me back home to my parents. Because if they see me sad all the time, if they don't see me talking, they don't see me laughing, smiling, they're going to know like, oh, Galen's not happy. They'll bring me back. And then I started to think about that. And I was like, well, if I do that, then that means I have to do this. And if so, if I shut people out, that means I couldn't talk, that I couldn't laugh. I couldn't make some of the jokes. Like I was, again, I was such an outgoing kid that like, I couldn't wait to make a joke. So if you said something, I thought I had a funny like joke back to it. I would burst with out with it because I wanted so badly to say it. So I was, a, I'm an extreme extrovert. And I was even then. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, I don't know if I can shut everybody up. I don't know. Like, that's going to be really, really hard. And so I compromised. I made a concession with myself. I was like, okay, if this dude, which the caseworker at the time, it was a guy who I'd never met before. He was a new caseworker and he was removing me from my parents. And I remember I was like, if this dude comes out and he makes me feel better, then I won't do it. Then I won't shut people up. And I didn't know what feel better meant, but I knew if I experienced it, I would know. And he ended up coming back with my stuff and put it in the back seat. And I remember just hoping, I was like, please say something like just acknowledge the silence and the, the, the hard like aspect of what we're going through right now. And he reached in the back seat, grabbed a milk crate full of toys and told me I could have one. And then um, he buckled a seatbelt, turned the radio up and we drove away. That's the end of today's program with Galen Elmore. Tune in to part two as he shares who turned his life around and helped him become the father, advocate, and success he is today. We're so thankful that you all shared in today's conversation. 
we are always here and ready to set one more place at the table. Thanks for joining us on Trauma for Breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is brought to you and supported by Matt Force, working together to reduce substance abuse, and Yavapai County Community Health Services, working toward healthier communities.